Hello. There was simply so much fighting during the Napoleonic Wars that it remains quite possible to continue to dig into the archives and learn more, find out more about those smaller battles. I'm talking about the actions which didn't prove decisive to an overall campaign, actually the ones which campaigns probably rather skipped by and didn't pay attention to, but which nevertheless have so much to tell us about how those campaigns unfolded as they did. Battles like, for example, the fighting at Boxtel in September 1794, or the Battle of Villa Muriel in October 1812. They're not exactly, I don't know, Jemap or uh, Salamanca, are they? Uh, but uh, they are nevertheless so revealing about the fighting of the time. And both are the subject of books by Gary Wills. Now, you might know Gary on Twitter as CaseShotPublish, at CaseShotPublish, or indeed from episodes 11 and 12 of the Napoleonic Quarterly. Well, it was a great pleasure to speak to Gary, of course, for those episodes, and to have the follow-up conversation that you're about to hear. And um, interestingly, the subtitle to his book on Wellington's first battle, Combat at Boxtel, 15th September 1794, is... A Guide for Military Historians and Wargamers. Aha, that might give you a clue as to what's been driving Gary's interest in the tactics of the period ever since he was a teenager. First things first, Gary... Um I've got to ask you about your your uniform in the background there. The, the, so hanging up on the door in the shop behind you is a tremendous period uniform. It looks fantastic, um, but I can't quite make out the details of what it is. It's Christmas is good for me because uh, I got a new microphone, a ring light uh, for doing my videos. But the other thing I got was a hoodie. And what's <laughs> hanging on the door is a Napoleon hoodie. So... Oh, it's a hoodie! It's uniform <laughs> as Colonel of the Grenadier, uh, Grenadiers of the Imperial Guard. And uh, well, uh, it it's an incentive for you to look at some of my videos because the latest one has just gone up. <laughs> I'm wearing it. Excellent, excellent. That's fantastic. I shall take a look at your videos. And um, because, of course, you know, you've got so much to say about this period and, and uh, you've written about, um, well, you've written about the Peninsula War, but I think let's... let's um, I was really keen to ask you about your first book, Wellington's First Battle, about the Battle of Boxtel in 1794. How had your interest in this period emerged and why did you choose to write a book about that particular battle? When I retired from work and I was, and my only transferable skill was writing, um, I was looking around for something different and uh, even though we were heading at the time towards Waterloo 200, I thought, no, I wouldn't make any difference there. It was, wasn't any point. I thought everything that could be written about the Peninsula War had been written. But I genuinely think the fascination of the, the Revolutionary Wars, the French Revolutionary Wars, is that that's the time when the whole of warfare is in flux. So if you want to understand... Um, the importance of light infantry, the importance of horse artillery. Uh, these things are well established by the peninsula and obviously by Waterloo. They're in, where it's most interesting is at, in the battles of the French Revolution. And uh, so I was looking around for a subject. I, I 
I'm one of these blokes who never stopped playing with toy soldiers. So uh, I'm actually sitting in my war game room uh, talking to you now, looking at a layout of uh, uh, Ventil Opposer um, from 1812. And uh, it, it, the the thing that I'm interested in is the small battles that um, is it's not true now, but if when I looked at Boxtel, um, it, it merited a, a paragraph in even in the best Wellington uh, um, biography, it merits a paragraph. In some, it's a sentence, and right. uh, so I thought that would be an interesting starting point, and. Uh, um, I first of all had to check that it was his first battle, <laughs> and uh, so it took a lot of working through. And of course, the um, uh, the problem with the the Revolutionary Wars is the absence of, of records, because uh, the retreat yes. uh, back to Bremen had the effect of dumping a lot of the British regimental records. Oh right, okay. Oh really? What you mean? So at the time. Yeah, if you if you look at the uh, uh, one of the things one of the things I had to look at for Boxtel was Tommy Atkins, of course, because everybody knows the Duke of Wellington remembered the the Sergeant Tommy Atkins of the thirty third who was who was injured at Boxtel, and he said it's all in a day's work, and that's why Tommy Atkins was written in, into the specimen sheet thirty years later. Well, right. That's all very well, but the, there is a, an inspection, a, a muster book for the 33rd that did survive. It's uh, water damage and everything, uh, but it was enough to confirm that there wasn't a Tommy Atkins in the 33rd oh, uh, in, uh, in 1794. Oh, uh, there was an Atkins uh, in, uh, um, in the regiment, but he deserted in June, so uh, it won't have been him either. Was he at Water? I'm not quite sure. I've heard the story. Was he at Waterloo then, or something like that? This Tommy Atkins person. The the story is that um, Wellington had, uh, was apparently given a, a specimen form, and he filled out the name Tommy Thomas Atkins as the name in the in the book. And the story goes that he did it because he remembered um, a soldier at Boxtel who was injured and who he had said, who said to him, no, I'm okay, sir. It's all in a day's work. Um, okay. So that, that the, the uh, Tommy Atkins thing goes back at least another 40 years before then, but uh, it's still every, every September it's trotted out the Tommy Atkins <laughs> story. Right. That's very funny. Uh, there's so much about this period that is apocryphal. And I suppose, you know, historians have to do their best to try and, you know, find evidence for things, and sometimes, quite often, that is sadly lacking. Well, the other thing that interested me a lot about the period is that at uh, this time, the, uh, all of the armies were using battalion guns, and uh, and so uh, again, it's one of these points of transition. Um, what you find is the the horse artillery, the Royal Horse Artillery, is created in 1793. Um, Horse artillery was one of the things the French did pretty well, um, and they used it very aggressively in support of their skirmishers. And, uh, and unfortunately, horse artillery makes battalion guns look pretty 
pretty uh, pretty amateur. Uh, but the thing that again that is clear from when you read the actual reports is battalion guns were not bad. They just weren't as good as having horse artillery. And, right. Uh, and so you got guys like Augustus Fraser uh, uh, was in charge of a pair of battalion guns at Boxtel. Right. And uh, one of the things he uh, he writes in his later years is how how bad battalion guns were, and it's it's another one of these things that's always trotted out. But of course, he's in the horse artillery by then, so yes, he would think battalion guns are bad. <laughs> but at the time, he got a nice letter for commendation from Abercrombie about how well his battalion guns kept the French at bay in the pursuit after Boxtel. So wow. it, that, I wrote a series of articles in, in the Smoothbore Audience Journal about, um, about battalion guns, which uh, uh, I think is, is a fresh look at them. Um, a lot of the criticism of battalion guns goes back to three-pounder leather guns right. <laughs> 50 or 60 years before uh, this period. So there are lots of yeah. things. There's a lot of answering your question. Why am I interested in in that period? <laughs> well, just hearing you talk about it, I think it's you know it just highlights how many interesting individual cases. We think about ten thousand men here or thirty thousand there, but actually you've picked out already there a few examples. These were real people who were you know doing their own thing, and for us, we sort of see this as being somehow removed from. Uh, I don't know the, uh, stuff that was on sharp, uh, <laughs> but 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 actually it was it was the same period, um, and um, there, there were real there were humans involved um, on all sides who were suffering, and it did not sound like much fun. It has to be said, uh, fighting in, in this in this period. Well, that's the other side that I, interests me uh, uh, peculiarly that. The um, the French uh, on that faced Abercrombie uh, just outside Chindel uh, were led by one Lieutenant Colonel Chasse, who uh, was obviously uh, Belgian and uh, fighting for the French, uh, fought for Wellington at Waterloo, and arguably won the day at Waterloo, if you believe some people. Uh, so General Bayonet, the story of that, and there are. I, I think I counted four or five of Wellington's Waterloo generals were on that battlefield at Boxtel in 1794. Wow. They were lieutenants. And uh, so you're also, by studying that, you're studying how these people learnt their trade. And, mm. uh, and it oh, throws a light on other things. Like, you know, Sherbrooke claimed, always claimed that it was him who deserved the laurels at Boxtel, not Wellington, and so on and so forth. Well, what are those lessons then? What, what was it about the battles of this period which then influenced the development of how battles were fought and how campaigns were fought in, in the 19th century after 1805? I think the key lesson was the, the end of limited war, to have lived through the 1793 to 1795 campaigns from, from, the, from the allied soldiers' point of view, they must at times have wondered what on earth they've got to do to, to finish these guys off. Um, because the French approach was, you know, it didn't matter 
that they they got broken up and dispersed, they would just rally them and start again. And uh, and because of the numbers involved, the disparity in numbers involved, it, it didn't matter. And uh, I think the the development of um, uh, more more aggressive uh, light infantry tactics. Um, uh, you know, everybody used light infantry. The um, but arguably, it was the French who were used them most aggressively during this war. They used them as their main, uh, supported by their light artillery, light artillery, their horse artillery. They used them as their main uh, force of uh, of rupture, if you like. And uh, yeah. so, I, I think it, it's they will know that things are changing. And of course, the people that beat Napoleon in the end, this is their formative years. And uh, for them, that new way of war was was normal. And some will say it wasn't new. It was an extension of of what had already been going on. That clearly is the case. But it's about it's about it's amplifying. It's about turning the amplifier up uh, rather than revolutionary new things. Um, so, it's yeah. about getting everything together, the large numbers, uh, the organisation. Um, close support of mobile artillery. Um, the whole period is full of little intricacies uh, that not enough has been written about. And uh, I wish I could go on for hours on it, but I couldn't because <laughs> there aren't enough details that have been extracted out of it yet. And uh, okay. So there's more to do. I, I've written another book on Lincells, uh, which I will, I will publish uh, probably later on this year. I can get back to the National Army Museum to check the last uh, the last bit of research. Um, and I've also done some work on Toulon. Uh, and uh, uh, so these uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff. I got a bit diverted uh, with Wellington <laughs> Bay. No, that's that's very interesting. Well, just to ask you about Toulon, um, which is a fascinating topic that that is covered off in season one of the podcast. Um, What's what's your big thought about about Toulon? Is there anything that you think is underappreciated, or that that really you know you feel strongly about? Because I, I, it's such an odd military setup, really, the whole situation. It's not so much that. I mean, I I, I it's just that I believe um, the there's a lot written about the campaign. Uh, what I focused on uh, focused on is the uh, the night attack that finished the campaign. So, which Bonaparte uh, was part of leading the assault on Fort Mulgrave. I think, uh, um, I think the the best texts are are not widely known, and uh, the Osprey book does a half decent job, but not a great job. And, <laughs> right. uh, so that's another one I, I want to do some more work on. And it's the nitty gritty of um, what did it feel like to be one of those. Uh, Poor sods in that redoubt with uh, the French columns heading for them through the dark, and oh. uh, I think, don't think there's enough written on those, that level of detail. I'm a war gamer, so I'm interested in small scale stuff that we can recreate create on a table and and still see a battalion as a battalion. Yes, and actually, that's an interesting sort of thematic point that you know we're, we're talking about lots of different perspectives on the period uh, and. I am uh, really keen to ensure that we we do get that diversity 
of of thoughts and you know looking for example at the caribbean revolution but uh, the, the 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 haitian slave revolt etc but actually so much of the period is is at sort of core level um you know when you try and work out how mac got stymied so completely uh, in 1805, it's not really about a battalion per se. So it's really interesting to get this alternative view where it's about that level of, um, you know, hundreds rather than thousands or tens of thousands and how they interact together. I have a great deal of respect for anybody who thinks they can write a history of a campaign and get through it without making a mistake. Um, <laughs> because... Uh, for Wellington at Bay, I spent eight years looking at all the different bits of uh, information I could get on one day of the retreat from Burgos. And uh, I think the what tends to happen in campaign histories is you have to keep with the broad brush. And naturally, you miss the, uh, the, the, the small details. And a lot of stuff in campa- campaign histories goes completely unchallenged and uh it's the yeah, i mean it's the true of uh, villa muriel it's true of salamanca which uh, is my latest effort with elion uh in the forthcoming glorious fleeting book so you know by looking at divisions and battalions it's it's a, a good way of understanding what really went on right whereas campaign histories will tell you if you put this division with that division, on average, this is what will happen. But they're actually not the same as, well, what do we actually know that, that went on that day? One of the things that's changed is the amount of information that's available. The reason it took me eight years with Billy Muriel is all of the registres, the uh, registre matricule for the four French regiments are all online. If you're writing any sort of history and and that information is online, uh, yeah. you've got no excuse not, not to look at it. Yeah, it's 65,000 records, but how can you call yourself a historian if you haven't looked at it? <laughs> wow. And, no, that's, that's uh, so today's, it, it's... It's 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 a an, there's an amazing opportunity for us to get out there and look at stuff in finer detail, and oftentimes you find things that are claimed that are, are challenged. But when you look at the detail, you can find out actually now it might sound incredible, but it's actually true. Why did you choose the Battle of Villa Muriel? Um, it, a long way from um, the French Revolutionary Wars, this situation in October 1812, as you say, Wellington on the retreat back from Burgos. The truth is that Carol Duval and I li- lived in the same town. And uh, when I published uh, Wellington's uh, first battle, um, I had the war game that goes with it set up and I invited her around for coffee to see it. And so she came around with her, her husband and uh, as she was leaving, having seen what I did, she said, you really ought to look at the Battle of Villa Muriel, you know. <laughs> and I said, OK, fine. And uh, I was obviously looking for a new project. And I thought, Peninsula War, magazine article, bite-sized battle in one of the magazine articles, easy. Yeah, and, right. Uh, then I had a look, and actually, it was obvious that uh, 
Carol was right. There, there was very little had been done on it. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, I've seen it described as insignificant. Well, it is on the campaign. But what does it tell us about how the, the two armies fought? It actually tells us quite a lot. And so, as I said, it was, it was a project that sort of grew like Topsy. And before I knew where I was, I'd uh, written um, 80,000 words and Andrew was asking if he could publish it. So, and, and what are those lessons? What, what does Phil Muriel teach us? Well, it, it teaches you that um, it asks some important questions. For instance, the ninth foot, right, is a normal line infantry regiment for the British Army. Yeah. Never been listed as a light infantry regiment, has it? Well, when you start to look at the, the officers in that regiment, there's one in particular, um, describes a review that was held with some generals. And uh, he said, we, we demonstrated the light infantry manoeuvres for which we are getting famous. And at Villa Muriel, half the battalion was deployed as skirmishers oh. at the bridge. And nobody would ever tell you that the 9th Foot was a light infantry regiment, and I wouldn't either. But it's part of the pattern of the British Army becoming more universal in its use of light infantry. And, uh, and so that's one story, if you like, that uh, has come out of uh, writing that book. When McCoon, who was leading the 5th Division, uh, turned up at Villa Muriel in the morning, according to uh, a guy who was there, the first thing he did is he he took out a third of the division and deployed them as skirmishers. So that's all of the all of the Voltigeurs, probably most of the Grenadiers. And the other thing that he was also reported the, is that the 15th Linear, which was at the lead, the most senior regiment in the division, by the end of the afternoon, by the time Wellington counterattacked, the 15th Linear was also deployed entirely as skirmishers. Wow. So you have something like, at the end of the, the battle, if you believe, the colonel um, who wrote it, half of the Bayshard's division was deployed in skirmish screen. And uh, when you understand that, it's then no surprise that Wellington's counterattack, where he launched the, uh, Oswald's division at the troops on his side of the river, obviously cut through the French light and knife through butter, because... The French weren't expecting the counterattack. They're all in skirmish order. They all beetled back to the uh, <laughs> to the uh, to the other side of the river. The net result was actually the the despite it being portrayed as a a, a British victory over McCoon, McCoon got back to the other side of the river with fewer casualties than Wellington did. Well, there we and are. So again, it's a well. Hang on a minute. What's all this about? And it asks other questions I've asked. That, so one of the things that frustrates me about the Peninsula War is people talk about the equivalence between the Leger uh, regiments and the line regiments in terms of their skirmishing ability. And they, people say, well, the Leger have degraded to the status of the line. And I'm not so sure. I think the thing that's interesting is that when... When McCoon deployed his skirmishers at uh, um, 
at Villamuriel. He used the whole of the first brigade's skirmish screen to do the skirmishing. The skirmishers from the second brigade were left standing watching. They were supporting. Right. So I, I actually believe, and I need to do more work, I actually believe the 15th Vinya was actually an expert skirmishing unit. <laughs> right. And, I uh, see. And, and if you look at the divisions in the Army of Portugal, most of them had a Leger regiment in the 1st Brigade. Some of them didn't, including the 5th. So my assumption is, is by default, you use your skirmishers from the units that are most used to doing it. And I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a question that's more useful than did Wellington leave a bigger legacy than Napoleon? <laughs> right, yes, it's much more literally down to earth. Okay, no, it's it's really interesting talking to you, someone who is uh, digging in and looking at the, the detail of, of how these battles were fought on such such a uh, an intricate level. Um uh, what is it that continues to? I mean, clearly, it's your interest in wargaming. I think it's all linked up with that. You want to understand how these troops operated on that sort of theatre, the kind of theatre that you can lay out on a table in front of you. Yeah, I mean, basically, I I, um, <laughs> I started this when I was fourteen, uh, nineteen seventy-one. A copy of Military Modelling. There was a, an article in there by Charles Grant on. How to Napoleonic War Game, columns, forming lines, and all this sort of stuff. But uh, I'm not sure if that had the biggest effect on me or the Victor magazine for boys, Victor comic for boys. One, <laughs> the I had it every week. The one I remember is the one of Albuera, uh, where where the 57th their nickname of the Diehards, and ever since that point, you you say, what do you mean they stood? 100 yards away from each other and fired at each other for 40 minutes. I yeah. don't understand how that's done. I don't understand how that is led. And uh, and I, I am fascinated by the leadership that, that is shown to make that happen, by the way in which soldiers were just prepared to do what they did on a regular basis. So the other thing about Villa Muriel and Boxtel, for that matter, there's no, you know... Put him here in box. Oh, these are not Waterloo's. The end of the other guy isn't going to end his regime if we win mm. this battle. Yet the guys turned out at Billy Muriel just as well as they did any other day. It was just another day, and they were prepared to stand in line and take the artillery fire, take the musket fire, and march into it. Barnes's brigade at uh, Billy Muriel launched an attack on the French at the bridge. In doing it, they had to cross the fire of 10 French guns. They were probably 150 yards away from them at the time. I mean, how wow. do you lead men to do that? And, uh, yeah, it's only yeah. choice soldiers, but that's what's in my head. The real people. The real people who actually did it, yeah. Uh, and it, I think the thing that's fascinating about the research is the little stories, you know. You know, in... in the, there was the Spanish, two Spanish regiments at, uh, at uh, Villa Muriel, led by a guy called Linian. And Linian was his, his first, um, it was his first field command of a brigade. Mm. And uh, in his biography, it reports that they captured the, ba the band of a French infantry regiment 
in their attack. And uh, you look at that because it's written in the middle of the 19th century. So, oh, that's got to be rubbish, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Until you get the the the, uh, the registers out for the 15th India, and they lost two bandsmen and three drummers. <laughs> well, by, that's the, very good. By, presumably the Spanish in the attack. Well, and it's are. those stories that keep me going. Well, it's a great place to end, and so that—I mean—that was—that was really great. Well, that conversation with Gary was recorded earlier in 2021. And since then, he tells me he's been very busily working away, most recently contributing a chapter on Salamanca in Glorious Fleeting and presenting to the Society for Army Historical Research's centenary conference at the National Army Museum on the 1793 Battle of Linsell. All the best to him as he continues to burrow away into the archives. And this second series of the Napoleonic Quarterly is concluding next week with an interview recorded last year with Adam Zamoyski. So one more to go before um, I'm going to be turning my attentions to 1796 and 1797. Until next week, goodbye for now.